Oh, of course, you're in the chair. I am the chair. Okay, let's um, begin with um, coronavirus and uh, COVID-19 and uh, all the rest of it. Not much particularly uh, to say, except it certainly looks to me, and I'm sure many others, that what we're on is the sort of... Um, verge of um, a pandemic. Um, I think we're past the stage where you can hunt down um, an individual occurrence, isolate it, kill uh, the spread of uh, the virus and therefore kill it. Um, it looks like it's now spreading, not totally out of control, but spreading at a pace of where it can only be slowed down. So sure you've read the same stuff as I have that uh, the, the hope is that uh, by summer uh, the warm weather will help uh, reduce its spread um, no doubt they're working on some sort of um, immunization um, um, approach but that looks like it will be some time off um, so what we're uh, I say looking forward to I don't mean it in that way but you know what I mean what we seem to be um, facing is um, areas of the country being closed down in terms of uh, travel, restrictions on big uh, public gatherings uh, restrictions on air flight from certain countries um, but of course while they say that um, the government and various other governments that uh, there's no need to panic and I don't, I don't, don't really see um, where panicking sorry, don't, where panicking um, would, uh, would get you um, the fact remains that uh, if there is a wide, wide um, um, outbreak what we'll see is quite some number of deaths I don't know what exactly the death toll is I don't suppose anyone does but you know we're talking 2% maybe more there is the possibility that the virus could um, evolve and become more deadly some people think that um, you know the more deadly a virus is or some sort of bug is uh, the better it is for the bug that's not true uh, much better from a bug's point of view that people survive because it's interested in surviving so if you take Ebola for example it kills people incredibly quickly and often it kills people before it can spread so as a you know Richard Dawkins selfish gene from a gene point of view that isn't a particularly successful strategy where the common cold where we shrug our shoulders and say I've got a cold and you spread it around and someone else catches it and goes I caught that cold off uh, Ivor last week, bastard but you shrug your shoulders and you carry on but the cold uh, is spreading, the, the cold is, in, in, is endemic um, and as long as you, you've got uh, an immunity uh, to it or it has such a low mortality rate then everything's okay you don't worry about it so for example when Europeans first went to the Americas uh, they didn't have the common cold in the Americas and therefore it was a deadly uh, a disease where for us it, it's just a nuisance so in terms of coronavirus um, if it does evolve to be more deadly that doesn't mean it's more successful if we look back at SARS uh, they successfully stopped its spread and SARS as a disease no longer exists disease has to spread in order to reproduce if it can't spread it can't reproduce it dies out um, but at the moment coronavirus doesn't look like it's going to die out it's even quite possible we don't know but it's even quite possible that it becomes equivalent to flu because it has the same rough sort of death rate to it and uh, flu is something I get injected for now, being an old git, uh, every year. And uh, at the moment I'm fit enough not particularly to worry about uh, it as a threat to life. But it evolves and it evolves new strains. 
and we sort of shrug our shoulders. But in the United States, I don't know what the figures are, but roughly speaking, 50,000 people will die every year from the flu. And we just sort of shrug our shoulders. Well, okay, figures I've heard about coronavirus, has it higher than that? Um, but hey, who am I to talk? Uh, what this almost certainly will go hand in hand with is um, some sort of severe economic downturn. Um, it, there would be an economic downturn whatever happens because if you're talking about closing a factory, stopping transporting something, sending people home, uh, you know, parents looking after their kids and all the rest of it, there's bound to be a dampening effect. And of course, if we look at the state of the world capitalist economy, it's already weak. So, you know, if it was in a robust position, it would be something you could say, well, a couple of months, a quarter, maybe half uh, of the year you'll have an economic downturn, but we're not in that situation. We're dealing with a, a world economy that's extremely fragile, um, let alone with things like Brexit and... Uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, and uh, all the rest of it. Um, just to emphasise that uh, if we're looking at uh, coronavirus, uh, the idea um, that some free market economists might have had, uh, that if only you didn't have the NHS, if only you had uh, private medicine, everything would be fine, hardly. Uh, what this underlines um, is the necessity for a good, comprehensive public health system. Um, you know, if you privatise the health system and only have uh, the rich and the, you know, the upper middle class being able to afford full uh, medical care, well, you will still die because some poor bugger will cough on you uh, in the street. You can't escape it uh, because you're uh, rich. Um, talking about a weak, fragile, global capitalist economy. Of course, we're also talking in Britain about a weak, fragile, creaking NHS uh, that's going through its annual you know, stresses and strains of uh, winter. And of course, this won't just be about more um, admissions uh, into the NHS system, people being treated at home, but also the worst case is being treated in um, hospital. Uh, it's also a case, of course, if you're in the front line, you're a doctor, you're a nurse treating uh, these people, you're going to be more vulnerable. So I th although I'm saying uh, that some you know, fit young person like myself isn't worried about it, but if I was working in a hospital, you know, 12 hours a day, uh, you know, with people who've got this uh, disease, well, my chances of actually contracting it increase. Okay, the chances of me dying from it, although we had the doctor in China dying from it, chances of dying from it are still very low. But I, hey, I'm off sick. You know, so I'm off sick for two weeks. I have to, I have to isolate myself. Well, what's that mean for an overstrained NHS that's already got a shortage of doctors and nurses uh, and all the rest of it if 20%, for example, of, of them suddenly uh, are off sick? So... What are the contingency plans? Well, I don't know. Uh, one thing that most likely will happen is increase in state power. Uh, we must take a, how should you put it, a, a balanced, nuanced view uh, on this question. Because, I mean, I was just reading, for example, um, in, the, in the paper about a case in Japan, um, some guy, because that's what they what tends to happen in Japan is living with his elderly relatives they both contract coronavirus he actually has coronavirus uh, he's advised, told uh, to isolate himself for two weeks instead he goes out to uh, go and drink and uh, go all around the place quote unquote to infect other people well presumably the guy's mad you know, or certainly deeply antisocial here's the definition uh, of what? mad sorry, don't That's worry about it insane. what's <laughs> mentally ill? Siri, be quiet. <laughs> I swear at my phone as she turns around to me and says, that, that wasn't very pleasant, was it? And I go, because I'm asking a simple bloody question. And she replies, I wish you would be more polite. <laughs> anyway. Um, what the revisions used to call the Trotskyite twitch. There you are. Okay, let's move now. Um, so that's coronavirus. Obviously, in terms of the biggest rates of infection, 
uh, it's China, um, it's Korea, it's Japan, it's Iran, and um, all you would say in Iran, just like if you remember you know, the scenes in Ukraine when someone came back, uh, having been infected, there were riots. Uh, the fact of the matter is, in Iran, the vast mass of the population don't trust the government as far as they can throw it. And therefore, do they actually listen uh, to the warnings? Do they take it? You know, I mean, it's a basic fact of life. Do you trust the bastards? Even if you don't like them, do you trust them in terms of carrying out the measures that they're, they're talking about? Um, anyway, as I, as I say, just to wrap that one up, collective solutions are vital no individual uh, solutions. Syria, refugees. I'm just going to take this one from another angle. I mean, I could give a standard report on Syria and all the rest of it, but I'm just someone who's um, occasionally switches on the news, reads a paper or two and all the rest of it. So I'm reading the bourgeois uh, media and I'm responding to the bourgeois uh, media. Syria. Um, here's some sort of war that's been going on and um, the various sides have um, been shifting in terms of their allies. It, it's a, um, a mosaic, a kaleidoscope of changing alliances and um, um, all the rest of it. So historically, yes, Iran has been on the side of the Assad regime, uh, Russia, ditto. But then you look at the Kurds and there's the United States. There's also Israel's uh, involvement. Um, you then look at Turkey, uh, which is a NATO ally of the United States. What's it done? Well, it's backed the anti-Assad side, including ISIS. Um, Saudi Arabia, another US ally, who have they been backing? ISIS, you know. Um, so is the United States in control? Well, yes, but. Uh, you know, all, all of these questions are uh, complex, but uh, the story that we, we get is that um, there is uh, Assad and the Ba'ath regime, um, and along with uh, Russia and its uh, Iranian allies, although the Iranians seem to be taking more uh, of a back seat at the present time, are pushing into this last remaining province of the rebels and it's causing this massive refugee problem. Okay, I can sort of nod along uh, to, that, to that thus far. Well, okay, so here's a hopeless military situation. There's a humanitarian, I don't know why there's always humanitarian crises, you know, but a humanitarian uh, crisis. Why isn't the Western press, why isn't the Western media, why aren't Western politicians calling for a surrender? Hmm. Why aren't they actually saying to these Rebels. Who are the rebels? We're usually not told, but we all know who they are. Um, I can't remember their latest name, but we're dealing with Al-Qaeda, aren't we? And various other forms of jihadists. If, anyway, I don't know if anyone listened to an interview with the Free, is it the Free Syrian Army? I've got to get my factions right. Uh, this is the pro-Turkish um, uh, militia. What do they want uh, in Syria? Well, what we want is Sharia law. What we want is get rid of all these Christians. What we want to do is get rid of all these, uh, um, you know, not proper believers. Um, well, <coughs> so it seemed to me uh, that uh, in terms of bringing peace, um, surrender, you, you would have thought they would actually be urging surrender. Clearly, in terms of Turkey, what's, what's the game? Um, it clearly wants chaos. It clearly wants some sort of uh, cordon, um, certainly in the Kurdish areas. But why, why Idlib? Uh, what's it doing? What's the strategic aim? All I would say uh, in terms of um, Turkey uh, is it successfully um, made itself unpopular with enough um, uh, people around it uh, not to expect much help when it's in trouble. So here's a NATO uh, country. I would actually say, you know, looking at it as an armchair general, Turkey against Syria, even with Russian air cover, should just slaughter them. You know, they, there's just no contest. Here's a NATO army, huge army, okay, not NATO's best, but clearly vastly superior in terms of numbers, vastly superior in terms of technology. It will have US aircraft, okay, the Russian Air Force has Russian aircraft, but what we're talking about is NATO aircraft 
American aircraft, I'm not talking about designed and all the rest of it, based in Turkey. There should be no contest. And yet, uh, Syria has agreed to a peace deal, temporarily, right, that grants uh, Syria uh, the territory that it gained uh, in its offensive. Um, so presumably there's something going on there. Clearly this is a temporary question. We also have Turkey using the refugee a crisis apparently to pressurise uh, Europe. Is Europe going to respond by saying, yes, we're going to send you aircraft, we're going to send you troops in order to attack Assad or beat off Assad? Clearly not. Um, anyway, there's an awful lot else going on uh, around Turkey. We have the disputes over the Mediterranean um, uh, area in terms of gas and uh, oil. We also have, um, when I was um, um, a, a member of the uh, TKP, Communist Party of Turkey, for a year, uh, before I joined I had to get an education in Turkish history and I was taught one thing very clearly, uh, and that is Turkey historically since the Republic has territorial claims on its neighbours to the east and to the south. So it claims you know, bits of Iraq, it claims bits of uh, uh, Syria. This is part of uh, the sort of national idea. It sees northern Cyprus. Um, you know, this is um, an aggressive uh, power. Uh, it's not a it's not a big power, it can't have big power ambitions, but it's certainly got medium power uh, ambitions. And certainly with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's developed ties with the various stans uh, to, the, um, to the east. Okay, uh, Saudi Arabia, I don't know what's happening either. Um, we've had the arrest, I, I tried to get my names right, you know I'm very bad at uh, names bad at English names, let alone um, Arab names, but I'm going to do my best. Prince Ahmad bin Abduziz's. Sorry about that. That's the best I'm going to do. Um, and then we have Mohammed bin Nayet. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, half-brother and cousin of MBS, Mohammed uh, bin Salman. The sort of... Mm, well, he's the crown prince. Isn't he? And he exercises effective power. We saw that with the dismemberment of that poor bloody um, Saudi uh, journalist in uh, Turkey. Um, I didn't know anything about it as they're on the phone to the boss, as they're sawing someone's uh, leg off sort of type idea. Um, there's talk of a coup, this is what I've read, uh, a coup attempt backed by Western powers. Frankly, I'm not very convinced. I can see why he wants to get rid of these people, uh, because, you know, in any dynastic system where you're talking about real power, you know, brothers and all the rest of it are threats. And usually what happens in um, societies of where fathers produce multiple um, offspring is the new ruler uh, comes to power and then will indulge in a mass slaughter. Um, of his uh, brothers you know that that's just the standard uh, thing that they do so daddy might have produced you 30 sons and 30 daughters the daughters are okay because you can use them to trade out uh, in terms of alliances sons on the other hand hey uh, I don't know why you want 30 sons maybe because one of them might die uh, but what's guaranteed is an awful lot of them are going to die by the hands of one of your sons Right, so to me that's much more likely what's going on, so it's insurance about the future. Uh, that if, I, if MBS gets into trouble in the future, there's no one with a close legitimate claim uh, to the throne. That's my reasoning. Why? I don't believe the coup thing, not because the Saudi armed forces are guaranteed to be reliable, I think it's quite the opposite, I think they're guaranteed to be unreliable and pretty bloody useless. We've seen that in Yemen. You know. How comes they can't win in Yemen? They've got the best equipment that money can buy, and they're fighting a you know relatively low-level guerrilla warfare and losing, in spite of bombing the fuck out of people, you know, with no jungle cover or anything like that in a basically desert conditions. Why can't they win? Because they're useless. Because they don't want to fight. Because they don't believe in this fight. That's my guess. 
Okay. So what about the Western powers? Well, the only serious Western power in Saudi Arabia has to be the United States. I mean, so Britain doesn't like MBS. Or Turkey doesn't like MBS if we count Turkey as a Western power. Well, so what? You know, so if America uh, doesn't approve of the coup, okay, they can kill MBS. But if America doesn't approve of the coup, the coup don't happen. That's my reading of it. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Um, anyway, that's my take on it for what it's worth, and it ain't worth very much. Um, the Mirror, I was reading a story, it's denied, and I think again it strikes me as a piece of bullshit. Len McCluskey apparently wants to step down as General Secretary of Unite. Well, given the efforts he went to to stay as General Secretary of Unite for as long as he can before he retires, either he's dying or something very quickly, and the pictures I've seen of him don't look like he's sort of withering away with some horrible disease right so I'm very skeptical of course he's going to retire but remember he had the election to give him the maximum time in office so why on earth would you go through all that bother and then the court case and the, the election and then turn around having won it and go oh I've had enough of this I want to go to the countryside put my feet up uh, I don't really buy it um, okay so what the Daily Mirror says or what the Mirror says their big hope, that's what my version of the story is, hadn't heard of her before, Sharon Graham. Anyone heard of Sharon Graham? No. She is going to be the first female General Secretary of Unite Britain's second largest union. I didn't know it was second biggest. Uh, it's actually gone down from being the biggest. It's shrinking, in other words. Okay. She is described as independent left. Now, that's all you need to know. Right, it means that she isn't independent and she's not on the left. I mean, seriously, she's not. Right? Because what, she, what her uh, agenda is, a break from the Corbyn heritage. Right, so you, you know exactly who she is. And the fact that the, the Mirror is running the story isn't about now, uh, about Len McCluskey uh, stepping down. It's about boosting her when uh, um, Len McCarsky steps down. So it's no immediate story, but clearly in the next few years, I don't know how many, two years, no, three years, something like that, whenever McCluskey steps down, here you are, here's Sharon, uh, ready to become the first female uh, uh, General Secretary of UNITE. Clearly, this is something that would very much fit in with Keir Starmer and his agenda. Uh, wouldn't want uh, Len McCluskey or a Len McCluskey clone as head of uh, Unite. So the Mirror does inform us that Howard Beckett and Steve Turner, who I have heard of, I'm not very expert on trade union movement, but Steve Turner I have heard of, um, are also talk, talked about as potential replacements for uh, McCluskey, much more likely replacements has to be said that the last election in Unite had a pretty low turnout from my memory, something like 12%, which isn't great, but not extraordinarily low for trade unions. And the actual margin between McCluskey and his challenger, you know, the right-wing backed uh, challenger, wasn't pleasingly wide. You know, I think it was something like 6,000 votes. McCluskey may be on, you know... 59,000, this challenger on something like 53,000, you know, this is a bit of memory, but something like, like that. But clearly, uh, this is part of the campaign to change the trade union movement uh, so that you can return the Labour Party to a safe pair of hands. You can trust the Labour Party uh, being the alternative government again, as opposed to being uh, led by a loony, pacifist, untrustworthy bastard like Corbyn with his straight leftist advisers and all the rest of it. Just a very quick comment on Super Tuesday. Uh, Joe Biden came back from the dead, won 10 out of 14. Uh, some votes are still being counted, but nonetheless we can broadly, uh, well, easily make a judgment. So he came back from the dead. There, there is some uh, popular US paper, I can't remember the name of it, that has on its front page after Super Tuesday, you know, like one of these zombie films with a hand coming out of the grave and he's back. Um, there are also stories going around about him having early Alzheimer's and all the rest of it. I don't know, you know, I mean, quite frankly, when I listen to Trump, I go, 
bloody hell, you know, what the... No, seriously, I don't mean that. I don't mean that in any sense that because he's on the right. I mean it seriously. I mean, some of his stuff is so sort of wacky and, what, you know, where's his connection with reality? I don't think this is just right wing, in other words. I think we're actually dealing with some sort of brain. That's what... Oh, come on. Now, this is not a moron. We're not talking about some, you know, we, we are talking about someone. Because you didn't live in New York. I you know. Never had that kind of either, either way, either way. Look, I just think sometimes when you take people who aren't on our wavelength and don't have the same culture as us. So if, if, for example, someone said to me, who's Leon Trotsky? Right, I would take five steps back and go, "Fuck me!" This per- no, seriously, I'd go, "This person's a moron." No, I, that's my reaction. On the other hand, if they said Tottenham did well yesterday, I'd go, "Oh, did they? Oh, of course they did." <laughs> yeah, I tell you what. Look, I mean, this is me getting carried away. When I was in India, right, I, people would ask me, "Where are you from?" Because obviously I'm a, a foreigner, and I'd say, um, "I used to say, I used to say England," and so. They're cricket fanatics. So they start talking to me about Australia and England, and I would just nod. <laughs> I just yeah, bro, uh, or come up with, they got a good left. Something <laughs> silly mid off. <laughs> you get the you get the point. They would have viewed me as moronic. Here, you know, here here's someone from England that plays very good uh, cricket from their point of view. They they do think it does, by the way, more than I do. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I I just think that sometimes we can look at someone like Trump who doesn't know our politics or doesn't know this or doesn't know that. But I'm serious, uh, you know, in terms of what seems to be going on in his brain. And he's the most powerful person on the planet, and he has his finger, and he can give orders. Uh, this is a worrying uh, situation. I know uh, Nixon and all the rest of it went in for the mad doctrine, and, the, you know, I got starey eyes, so don't mess with me sort of type ideas. But when you look at Trump, I don't think that's a game plan, you know, a game player. I think that's sort of... That's real. He could do this one moment, do the next, uh, an- another moment. Doesn't matter that they're in contradiction. Anyway, uh, my main point is that, yeah, Joe Biden came from the dead, 10 out of 14. Has to be said, though, that Sanders won California. Uh, that is not quite as big as Britain in terms of population, but bugger me, it's near enough. Uh, I think it would count as the fifth richest country on the planet. Uh, it is the most populous uh, uh, state in the United States, but he did not win Texas, where he was expected uh, to win. There's a lot of uh, Latino uh, people in uh, Me- from Mexico and uh, Southern America and all the rest of it uh, living in Texas as Texans. And uh, native-born, native because Texas was conquered along with California. Uh, all the rest of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in that sense, uh, what we're now dealing with is will the Bernie Sanders campaign survive? It's now his campaign that's in jeopardy. Well, the next state, as I understand it, is Michigan. Last time around, 2016, he won that against Hillary Clinton. So the calculation is, yes, he'll win uh, Michigan. We don't know then what um, happens. Um, But um, that aside... I'm not claiming I've convinced anybody, uh, but I have to say uh, that in this week's Weekly Worker, Peter wrote the original strap line. We've got a correspondent in America called Jim Cregan. Correspondent's not really the right word. A contributor in the United States who normally, when I read him, at least when it comes to the Bolsheviks and all of that, I go, oh, for fuck's sake. Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> uh, but I go, oh, can't these people just learn... No, you know, whatever it is, uh, uh, he just doesn't get his head around it. So Peter's original strap line was uh, Jim Cregan gives his take uh, on the latest um, elections in the United States, i.e. trying to uh, distance ourselves. Now, this is his view of it, because it's, cause last time round, Jim, uh, I can't remember who he was backing, but it was, uh, no, we can't vote for any Democrat not even, no, no Democrat of any sort, including Bernie Sanders, because even though he isn't a member of the Democrat Party, he's standing uh, for the Democratic presidency, so that's uh, verbatim. So what you've got to do is back someone like, I don't know whether the Greens were running last time, but I think they were, you've got to back the Greens. Well, Jim, you know, what's the point? 
you know, if the Greens were a working class movement, or you know, even some sect. Uh, on the working class uh, left, I'd say, well, okay, you, you know, make, you know, that sort of type of idea. But anyway, he's come round. Uh, of course, he hasn't come round because of our criticism, or it just is what is going on in the United States. So read the right wing press, read the liberal press, and they are shitting themselves uh, mm -hmm. over this because it's not impossible yep. uh, that Bernie Sanders could win. And against uh, um, Trump who might be going through a coronavirus uh, economic Who the hell knows under those circumstances when Bernie Sanders is one of his main planks, his public health and all the rest of it, who knows um, under those circumstances it's not impossible that Bernie Sanders can win. Now I'm not saying it's likely uh, but it's not something you would now dismiss as fantasy. Uh, land. We really are into extremely unpredictable <coughs> territory. I never predicted that Trump would win. Uh, I didn't think he would. I just thought the Republican establishment would stop him. I think that the Republican establishment had been trying to stop Bernie Sanders. That's why we had the uh, various people pulling out in order to back uh, Biden. Either way, uh, given what's going on in the United States, what's going on in the world, uh, you know, I welcome uh, uh, Jim coming over to that view because it's got nothing to do with illusions in the Democrat Party it's about the fact that in the United States as I understand it when they go around and you know opinion poll Democ registered Democrat voters and I know what they mean by it but when they say the word what do you think of socialism seven out of ten say it's a bloody good idea now what they mean by that is the National Health Service and all sorts of things like that get the gains of the working class in places like Western Europe compared with a much richer country called the United States that don't have that. That's what they mean by it. I know that. But for the left who've been absolutely totally on the margins in the United States, way beyond us being on the margins in Britain, this represents a fantastic opportunity to say, well, this is what I, I'm a socialist, this is what I think about socialism, this is what we could do on a global level, this is what we need to organise, you can't trust the Democrat Party, this is why, because you can never take it over, blah, blah, blah. It's your chance to break out of this suffocating, asphyxiating isolation. That's my uh, version. Interestingly, when they ask the same lot, what do you think of capitalism, we get the same sort of proportion, it's bad, because they've been told that this is capitalism and they don't like it. And okay, that's not Republican voters, uh, uh, but nonetheless, in terms of Democrats, clearly a lot of people who register as Democrats want change, and that's particularly so with the young. Now, I'm not saying, well, therefore we've got it in the bag, which is what some people say. You know, if young people are for something, they never grow up, they never change their minds, they just become old people with the same ideas. So it doesn't work like that. Uh, but you know what I mean. Nonetheless, it's hopeful. It's a hopeful sign. Now, I'm not grabbing it and saying, this is the answer. Um, it's just that sometimes history, or, you know, life gives you a chance sometimes. I think the left in Britain blew the Corbyn moment. I, I think it's been criminal what the left has not done um, you know given this opportunity that was a gift from the gods and the morons you know um, what was her name Beckett Margaret Beckett voting to put Jeremy Corbyn on the ballot and then we all know what happened but the left has done basically bugger all with that opportunity another welcome development in the United States get the name of the paper right John the People's Daily World they used to have two papers in the Communist Party of the United States, one on the West, one on the East, and they merged it. It's now a website. But they've come out and said uh, that this Bernie thing is a jolly good uh, development. We need to get in there. Uh, not that we've got illusions in the Democrat Party. Not that we've got any illusions in Bernie. But here's a great opportunity, which is interesting, because I was horrified. I mean, I really was incredibly horrified, and, and just like, what? four years ago, reading in the same paper uh, that they were backing Hillary Clinton against Bernie, Sa I'm not joking, against Bernie Sanders because they were standing for the continuation of the Obama project. Well, here was Bernie Sanders running her a close second and they were determined to defend the Obama legacy, legacy and it was Clinton 
who wanted to bomb the shit out of Syria and all the rest of it, and I'm not going to boast about Bernie Sanders and how great, great he is, but clearly there was an opportunity that was missed. Okay, you've got a second chance at it. I'm glad to see uh, that they come over uh, to that viewpoint. Okay. Happy International Women's Day, uh, everybody. Finally. March the 8th. Okay. Now, as I understand it, um, and we have written about this, uh, I just re-looked it up, uh, the sort of the claimed origins of International Women's Day are in 1857 when New York um, garment workers went on strike over the ballot question. Right? So women were demanding uh, the vote. Really, though, International Women's Day is a 20th century uh, phenomenon. So if you Google um, International Women's Day, presumably the first site you come to is Wikipedia. Go into Wikipedia and there's a picture of Clara Zetkin arm in arm with Rosa Luxemburg. They cannot escape that history. That is the historical origins um, of it. And the politics of it, I think, are very revealing. Um, so social democracy um, agreed to... Uh, I don't think the original date was March the 8th. Either way, they call for mass demonstrations on International Women's Day and uh, millions of people turn out. So in Austria, Germany, um, you know, in the cities and towns uh, where social democracy is strong, um, the working class uh, shows its power and its commitment to universal suffrage. That's what it's a, a, a display of. Right? Remember, this is before World War I. Um, this is in a situation where in Britain... Um, some tiny slither of women get the vote for some strange reason but basically women don't have the vote but nor do the working class there is an element in the working class that have the vote uh, but only a section and the more skilled the, the richer section of the working class the mass of the working class don't have the vote in Germany what we're talking about anyway is a parliamentary system uh, that don't have much parliamentary power so we're really dealing with an autocracy uh, and we can go on throughout Europe and um, we don't have anything near universal suffrage so what's interesting is this movement triggered by social democracy um, led, if you want to name one leader, Clara Zetkin is actually opposed to the feminist movement the feminist movement is demanding, and this was a major division even when they were debating it in social democracy. So the British, for example, Labour Party types were saying, no, what we want, we don't want to put people off, what we want is equality between men and women. Now, I've already described the situation in Britain. That means middle class women having the vote. doesn't mean working class women having the vote. They said that this will be the, the first step. Right? That's the realistic thing to do. This is where we are. So we need to demand equality between men and women, which sounds very seductive. And if, if someone came to me and said, do you stand for the equality between men and women? I'd go, yeah. But then, concretely, what did that mean in a country like Britain, uh, let alone other countries? As I said, it means that the middle class have the vote, the bourgeoisie uh, have the vote, but the working class doesn't have the vote. So the demand of social democracy was universal suffrage. Men and women over, above, you know, usually it would be 21 in those days, all should have uh, the vote. Um, okay, we also should note, I think the first time International Women's Day was marked in Russia, I think was 1914. No. Wasn't? No. When? Uh, hold on, I no. just had it and then it disappeared. I think I should tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should do it, rather than looking it up, this is cheating. Yeah. Anyway, my main point is that International Women's Day in Russia was characterised by two different approaches. 1917. I'm dubious on that one. Um, we'll go to 1917 anyway. 1917, so I forget my, forget my uh, the Bolsheviks calling for um, men and women on demonstrations to join together and the Mensheviks going for women only uh, demonstrations. But in 1917 this had the characteristic of a spontaneous um, outbreak. It's certainly true and it shows you the relationship. I mean, both the Menshevik party and the Bolshevik party, to use the word in the Roman way, have been decimated. So nine-tenths of their cadre had either put their heads way, way down, were in exile, 
in Siberia, but the party was barely functioning. Nonetheless, uh, the women that came out on International Women's Day, they first consult the committees that they know of, of the Bolsheviks and of the Mensheviks, and both uh, um, parties, I call them parties, uh, advised against it. They didn't want people just being shot down. Uh, instead, of course, what happens is, you've read Trotsky's brilliant uh, descriptions of all this, and uh, uh, other writers, uh, is we get a rebellion in the army, a break in the army, um, you know, um, other people come out in solidarity with them, they go from factory to factory, and what we get is the beginning um, of the end of Tsarism. Um, the Tsarist regime crumbles, we get a provisional government. This is the first real act um, of the 1917 revolution. And then I turn to today, and the, the, the bourgeois press in Britain, at least what I've read, are having a field day looking at Putin's Russia. Uh, because in Putin's Russia, uh, what they've had is a beauty contest in the armed forces, and that's not for people like me, males. Of course not. What they've had is a female beauty contest, and it, it really is. It's one of those things you go, oh God, I can remember. Some of us are old enough to remember. I was young enough also that, given the nature of households in those days, I would have been watching Miss World in 1960 something, along with my dad, along with my mum because, you know, you only got one sitting room, only one TV, life was boring in those days. And then what happened is these bloody women in the bloody audience start flower-bombing the bloody thing, and I go, <laughs> My dad was appalled. I was delighted. I watched next year in the hope and conviction that it would be... Of course, no, no way. Okay. But this is what it was like uh, in, uh, in Russia. So International Women's Day is marked by a beauty contest with uh, various women uh, parading themselves in their uniforms and in bathing costumes and in evening wear and all the rest of it. And the, the bourgeois press are just going, oh, oh, look at Putin's Russia. You know, like if not a few years ago, they did exactly, exactly the same sort of thing. Right, okay. And then I read that amongst the biggest backers of International Women's Day, in, in terms of throwing money into it, is uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, Amazon boss. He's the guy uh, that drives people uh, to suicide. He's the, you know, squeezes every last second uh, off their workers. And I don't know what percentage of his workforce are female, but he doesn't give, to use a phrase, an F. Uh, about his employers, you know, down there. In terms of executives, no doubt, and all the rest of it, but nonetheless, he's hardly a shining example of women's liberation when it's about there, at the bottom of society. So no doubt, when it comes to his executives, he's got his... Uh, I'm just making this up, I haven't looked it up, but it wouldn't surprise me that Amazon has 50% of its executives as females. And I'm not saying that's an irrelevance, uh, but come on. Right. And then I turn, I think, to the Daily Mail or the Daily Express. I can't remember which one, because I'm not buying it, I'm reading it online. And I read an article by Amanda uh, Milling MP. And I don't know if you've heard of her. She's now the co-chair of the Tory, but she's a low-time minister. Uh, but she's writing, um, well, it's the Tory party that embodies the spirit of International Women's Day. Um, we, unlike the Labour Party, we've had two female leaders. Well, that's right. We had the first sitting, notice the word sitting, by the way, sitting MP, Nancy Astor. Because, of course, the first female MP uh, in Britain would be rather embarrassing uh, for them uh, to quote, who didn't take her seat, right, and we know why. Uh, but, according to our um, Amanda Milling, um, this is the spirit of International Women's Day. No, it ain't, at least in terms of the original uh, International Women's Day, which was actually named International Working Women's Day. It was about the working class, right? Not about just women, but about working class women and the liberation of working class women. Uh, and if you read Clara Zetkin, she was uh, convinced that this had to be hand in hand with working class men and men 
need to take responsibility for the liberation of women. It cannot just be left to women. That's not a patronising thing, because what she was determined to do is have a class struggle for the liberation of the whole of humanity, men, women, whatever. That was the original spirit um, of International Women's Day. And of course what happened is, I don't know what date it was, I guess the 50s or 60s, more likely the 60s, <coughs> the Soviet Union handed International Women's Day to the UN. It became thoroughly bureaucratised. And what's happened since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the weakening of the left is that um, high finance, um, the bourgeoisie, bourgeois politicians have taken over International Women's Day. And to me, there at least is a parallel, right? no more than that, between anti-racism and women's liberation. The idea that um, the bourgeoisie of 2020 are exactly the same as the bourgeoisie of 1920 or 1950 uh, I, I think is a nonsense. They colonised this idea. And they've taken it over, they've made it their own. Right? That doesn't mean women are liberated, right? but we're no longer dealing with the same ideological <coughs> enemy that we were uh, dealing with. Just a, a quick footnote on that. Remember, when uh, women were given the vote in Britain, uh, this went hand in hand with an extension of the franchise to the working class. But it was middle class women that were given the vote in the first tranche. Full equality, I think, came in the late 20s, right? not in the early uh, 20s, or not in 1918. And this was a calculation to balance uh, the influx of middle-class women into the electorate against the influx of the working class into the electorate. So they knew the Labour Party was on the rise, but they wanted to blunt its rise. And if we look at before that, the Tory party was proposing a referendum, you can guess of who, uh, on uh, female suffrage. So you have a, a referendum, who gets to vote? Get women's point of view. No, this is men would vote whether there would be women voting. Of course, you can't have women voting whether women should have the vote. You have people who are on the electorate. And of course the Labour Party, at least in those days, turned around and said, we don't believe in referendums. Uh, they're a, a dictator's device. That was the view of Ramsay MacDonald. Right? He knew his Karl Marx, he knew his history uh, of uh, uh, Bonaparte and all the rest of it. Okay, Labour Party, very quickly, looks like to me uh, that Keir Starmer will get it. This isn't because uh, there's been a massive influx of uh, new people into the Labour Party, yes there has been, but this isn't because of that, it's because the Labour Party has moved to the right. And you have to include, moving to the right, some people that have previously been Jeremy Corbyn fans. Well, if you put it forward as the, the, the key thing in politics is getting into office, right? Jeremy Corbyn has proved to be an utter disaster. And if that's what the left has been saying is the crucial thing, then you vote for someone who's considered safe, acceptable uh, to the media. That's what conclusion people draw. If you say the key thing is not getting into office, that's the last thing we want to do prematurely, but power and keeping power then you have a very different approach, right? A totally different approach. But we've raised, in that sense, uh, a generation uh, of people on the broadest uh, left in the working class movement, and the left keeps saying it, that the key thing is office. So when people look at Syriza, who's in alliance with a right wing, a far right government, people on the left are going, hey, this is really great. Uh, where's the criticism? of uh, the Irish left in socialist work. I think there's been some, but nothing much, about them entering a left government with who? Sinn Féin, who are committed to running Irish capitalism? You know, when Millerand entered uh, the French government, there was a massive debate uh, on the left, and it was condemned. Lessons were learned. We don't do that. Korsky wobbled, remember, with his uh, rubber resolution. Uh, but uh, firmed up. We do not want to enter bourgeois governments even if they are left bourgeois governments. Our job is not to run capitalism. Our job is to get rid of capitalism and to do that we need to organise on an international scale. Anyway, it looks like to me 
that Starmer will win. Whether that then leads him to a mass purge of the left, I don't know anymore. Because if they, after all, vote for him, then why do you need that? Maybe they change the rules and uh, restrict uh, who can stand in the leadership contest. They never have a Corbyn moment again. Because although he wouldn't have had a majority, the morons voted for him. Raise it up, raise the bar, raise the bar. Make sure that doesn't happen again. Make sure that the Daily Mirror, the Sun, and the Guardian choose your next <coughs> Labour leader, uh, not some um, uh, bunch of enthusiasts who uh, flock into the Labour Party and vote. What was it? Six quid, wasn't it? Supporter Three. status? Three quid? Three. Whatever it was, yeah. Right, okay. Okay, Okay, I won't bother with that one. Israel. Likud victory, but not enough. So the crisis, as I see, continues. Oh, there was a thing it just passed from my iPad that said that uh, Gantz had accepted um, Netanyahu's terms. Oh, he's joining a coalition government. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, uh, so we'll just have to see. We'll just have to see what happens there. Then all I'm saying is that that sort of does surprise me because, of course, what we have is uh, Netanyahu up on criminal charges. Anyway, I'm not going to comment any further on that. Um, for me, we've got uh, two more stories. Silliest story of the week uh, in the Independent. This is the headline: um, Queen's earliest known relative discovered. Right. Well, not Adam, not Eve. <laughs> right. No. Queen's earliest known relative is the granddaughter of King Ethbert, and he was knocking around Kent in about AD 60. Right? AD 60, 660. Uh, Morlon. Right? The idea that the Queen has got a fucking direct line from some Kentish king, Anglo-Saxon, I mean, doesn't, don't, don't these people know anything about English history? I mean, don't they know about the Norman Conquest and the wiping out of uh, the old feudal uh, class and the putting in of a new, usually with luz and does in front of their names and fitzes and uh, all sorts of uh, other things? There ain't many Ethberts and... Um, all, all of those types uh, around uh, in terms of subsequent uh, uh, English history, let alone in the aristocracy. So, uh, nil points, um, independent, sorry. Uh, last story, uh, this is um, rumours of uh, a CPGB split. This is, um, what's his name? Um, Who? Courtsy. Okay. No, I'm, on there. I'm thinking. I'm thinking of uh, the very famous, very famous American author. Uh, Rumours of my death are premature. Mark Twain. Right. Uh, apparently, you know, like all newspapers, get an obituary together uh, if you're old enough, and uh, they publish before you die. So his response was: Rumours of my death are much exaggerated. <laughs> so rumours of a CPGB split which have been uh, going around on sort of fringe left circles are much exaggerated. Uh, we had a number of votes uh, yesterday at our aggregate. One which had one against. Um, other than that it was unanimous. And then we had a 50-50 split. <gasps> but that was over having a school. And how do we handle? We have differences, by the way. So no one's no, no one's no one's disputing that there are differences in this organisation. No, exactly. Uh, in my view, at least, there are different important differences, but differences of shade when it comes to our approach to work in the Labour Party. This will be something that we'll explore further at aggregates, further uh, in our press. But uh, so there are differences, uh, but we haven't cleaved down uh, the middle. Okay, that's it.